Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, and chapter 2, 11 through 22. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1156, or you can read on the screen behind us. Please rise for the reading of the scripture. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time then the times will have reached their fulfillment, fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we have who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also are included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. He promised holy, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And then uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this body to reconcile both to them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through them, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles, and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too 
are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's word. Thanks, Chris and David, and thanks, Sarah, wherever she went, for sharing your story. Uh, Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to the book of Ephesians if you have them in front of you or if you want to use the one in the rack uh, that's right in front of you. Throughout our lives, we hit uh, different seasons where we're forced to ask searching questions about who we are. The teenage years are usually uh, the first time we run into this. As you become increasingly independent, you're no longer so-and-so's child. You're you. And so we're faced with the question, who am I? Uh, How do I understand my value, my significance, my story, my heritage, my identity? And how does that shape what I do? How does it shape what I'm going to do with my life, who I'm going to to become, how I'm going to live. And then there's the midlife crisis stage, where having answered those questions as a young person, we come uh, to a place in life where we realize, you know, whether it's some unexpected event or some uh, major life change, or we're somehow awoken to the reality that we are not who we thought we were going to become. All those expectations and dreams that we set for ourselves in our youth and uh, we look back then in regret and, and disappointment um, of all that we thought we would have accomplished by now, uh, you know, whether it's finding a spouse, having a child, landing a, a, an executive level job, owning a house, or, or we look back on all that we once upon a time had and then somehow lost, uh, you know, maybe through a, a tragic health crisis or a career ending layoff or just simply You know, the natural course of time that leaves us with an empty house and a a stack of tuition bills for our kids. And you wonder, is this what I worked so hard for all these years? You know, uh, is this what it was all about? Is that all there is to it? And, And we, again, run into this place where we wonder, who am I? What's this whole thing been about? And then there's the end of life identity crisis that is so often, uh, occurs. When there's no more road in front, uh, there's no, uh, you know, no longer an opportunity to do things differently. All you can do is, is turn around and evaluate. And again, we so often ask ourselves, who am I? Who was I? What did I spend my life doing? And did it really matter? And the temptation at each of these stages and really throughout all of life, is to try and find our identity, our significance, our who we are. To try and find that in what we do or what we failed to do, in, in what we have or what we don't have, in what others think of us or in what others have done to us. We look for our identity in those places. But as the Bible tells us in Ephesians and as Sarah bore witness to a moment ago, If your faith is in Jesus, you are not what's been done to you, but what Jesus has done for you. You aren't what you do, but what Jesus has done. What you do doesn't determine who you are. Rather, who you are in Christ determines what you do. 
Our identity is shaped by the gospel of Jesus, by the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom, to deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is true, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a congregation as well, as a community, as a church. Who we are flows out of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's from our, our identity comes from our union with Christ. And who we are shapes what we do. Our activity, how we live our lives, is shaped by our identity. And so we're taking the month of January to, to stop and take another close look at the vision that God has given us as a congregation to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. We talked about the necessity of why the gospel, the good news of Christ, must be the center of everything we are and everything we do last week. This morning, we're asking the question of our identity. Who are we in Jesus and how does that shape what we do as a church? Because it's incredibly easy, just as it's easy for us to find our identity personally, individually, and all sorts of things, it's very easy for us as a congregation or any congregation to find our identity, our significance and value in what we do. Whether it's the list of rules that we're really good at keeping, you know, the the commandments, or the long list of programs that we offer the busyness of our activities, the style of our music, the size of our missions commitment. We can find our identity in what we do. Or maybe we find it in what we fail to do. So, so the ministries that we don't offer, that we obsess over, you know, uh, things that we don't do a good job with that, that define us, or uh, things that we want to see change, that's who we are. Or perhaps we find our identity in what we have as a congregation. Maybe it's our building, maybe it's our budget, our staff, our congregation size, and so on. Or in what we don't have as a church. You know, more people, more staff, this family, that pastor, that kind of building. Perhaps we find it in what others think of us or what others do to us. Uh, priding ourselves in the praise we receive or wringing our hands nervously over the sour reputation that we might have. And the problem with approaching our identity in that way is that all of that is about us, but not about God. All of that is about making much of ourselves and our own name rather than God's name and God's glory, which not only deprives God of his glory, it deprives us of our good, of what's really good for us, and it distracts us from our mission because it keeps our eyes focused on us. On us. So how does the gospel of Jesus shape who we are as a church? How does it shape our identity? How does it inform the way we go about living on mission, living out our vision How does it help us think of churches less like something we go to and more like something we are? A family of missionary servants empowered by God's Spirit to make disciples for Christ. So that's our task this morning. To think about these questions um, and their practical implications of our identity in Christ as a church. And the book of Ephesians is going to be our guide. 
So uh, again, hopefully you've got that in front of you and, and please, please pray with me uh, as we give our attention to God's word. Lord, our desire this morning is to hear from you. We thank you that you have made yourself known in your word, that you've given us your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to see you, to hear you. So Lord, please speak to our hearts this morning from your word. And speak the peace and joy and freedom that comes from being rooted in Christ. Not just personally, but as a community, Lord. Help us understand that. Help us embrace that. And help us delight in who we are in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Ephesians... um, of course, we find it in the New Testament. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament, uh, addressed to the ancient city of Ephesus, to the church that was located in that city. And this book, what Paul had to write here, has much to teach us about how the gospel of Christ shapes our identity, who we are in Jesus. And again, not just our identity as individuals, but as a church. In fact, the phrase In him or in Christ or some variation of that phrase occurs at least 23 times in this book. This book has much to tell us about who we are in Jesus, what God has done in Jesus. And our essential identity, as the book of Ephesians frames it, is that we are a new people in whom God dwells and through whom God displays his glory. That's what it means to be the church. We are a new people, a new family in Christ, in whom he dwells and through whom he displays his glory. To think of that a little bit more practically speaking, we are a family of worshipers, of learners, of servants, and of missionaries in whom Christ dwells and through whom he displays his glory, his beauty, his incomparable Worthiness. That is who we are in Christ. A family of worshipers, of learners, of servants, and of missionaries uh, who by God's Spirit bring glory to Jesus. And everything about that has to do with how we're going to move toward our vision. You know, our understanding our identity in that way affects our motivation. It affects our goals, our desires, our dreams how we treat one another, we need to embrace who we are in Christ if we're going to live faithfully as a gospel-centered community on mission for him. And so we're going to think about these five realities this morning that I listed here. Family, worshipers, servants, learners, and missionaries, and what practical difference that makes. And we're going to start with family. In Jesus, we together are family the new family of God. One of the ways that uh, Ephesians helps us understand this and, and who we are is by contrasting it against who we used to be before Jesus, apart from Christ. Uh, so look at chapter 2, verse 1 with me. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, reference to to Satan. All of us 
also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects or children of wrath. So a picture of who we are apart from Christ. Rebels who lived life on our own terms to our own spiritual death and God's just judgment. Uh, Paul goes on later in chapter 2, verse 12. He's writing to a predominantly Gentile congregation, so a non-Jewish church, those who, whose heritage does not enjoy uh, the covenant promises of God that he gave to his people in the Old Testament. So he says in, in chapter 2, verse 12, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. That's a pretty bleak identity. I mean, that's, that's a very depressing picture. Uh, but it captures, I think, quite well the disorientation and the loneliness and the shame and the rebellion and the foolishness that so often marks who we are apart from Jesus in this fallen world. Uh, of life where our identity is in what we do or what we have, or what others think of us. But where that's not enough. That's that's a pretty bleak picture. And if, if you're just joining us this morning, or if you're here and you're just kind of exploring Christianity and trying to make sense of what all this means, this is a, this sounds pretty harsh, I'm sure. But Paul is being brutally honest with us because he wants us to see over against that the incredible, life-changing truth of finding our hope and identity in Jesus. In Jesus, God is doing something new in this broken world. Look back to chapter 1 with me. We'll do just a little flipping, but we're going to stay in the book of Ephesians. Look back at chapter 1 with me and the opening psalm of praise that we heard read a few minutes ago. Uh, this book starts with a psalm of praise about God's incredible plan of salvation. That, come, that has now come to its climax in the life, death, and, resur- and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so again, we, we saw it earlier in 1, 3 through 14. God has been at work since before the foundation of this world to choose a people for himself by his grace to redeem us, to buy us back from our sin, to forgive us, cancel the debt of that sin, to adopt us into his own family and make us heirs of his kingdom. He's doing all of that according to his purpose, his will, his plan. And for the praise of his own glory. The goal here is to magnify his own name, his own worthiness. And at the center of this grand plan of God that spanned all of time and history, at the very center of it is Jesus Christ. In whom who God, whom God set forth, in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. To put them back together and to sum them all up in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. So in Jesus, God is putting a broken and rebellious world. A world that's lost its identity. He's putting it back together. And he's starting with a broken people. You and me. A people who are dead in their transgressions and sins, but by God's grace, whom he makes alive together 
with Christ. He's putting our personal lives back together through Jesus. But more than that, he's not just doing this at an individual personal level. He's taking communities, he's taking humanity and putting that back together as well. In chapter 2, he tells us how he's taking two groups of sinners. So Jews, God's covenant people, and Gentiles, everyone else, taking two groups of sinners and is creating in himself one new man, a new humanity, a new family of God, a new people. Look at Ephesians 2.14 with me. It says here of Jesus, For he himself is our peace, who's made the two, these two groups of sinners, he's made the two of them one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which by which he put to death their hostility. God's taking broken individuals. God's taking broken communities, broken nations. And he's putting them back together in Christ and creating in himself one new people, one new family of God. And we're invited into that family, not because of who we are or where we come from, not because of the kind of blood that runs through our veins or the kind of status we have in our culture, but as Paul says in in 2, 8 through 9, by God's grace through faith in Jesus. By God's grace through faith in Jesus. That's how we're invited into this family. Grace is a word you're going to hear a lot about at this church. And simply put, it means God's undeserved favor. Or another way of thinking of it is God giving us something wonderful even though we deserve something terrible. And I use this illustration a lot, but I think it captures the picture well. So it's, it's the image of sitting in a dungeon, isolated and alone, awaiting execution because of your high treason against the king, and then receiving notice that not only have you been pardoned, but you've been legally adopted into the king's family. You are no longer under judgment and you are no longer alone. You have a place at the king's table. And again, not because of who you are or what you did, but because the king's own son put his head under the guillotine in place of yours. That's grace. And it's that kind of grace through which God invites us into his new family if we believe. So the question for us then, if our identity, if who we are is that we are a new family in Christ, what does it look like to live as a family together? Especially as we think about the vision before us that God's given us. What does it look like to live as a family of forgiven and rescued sinners whose identity is secure in Christ? That's what the language of community in our vision statement's referring to, by the way. You know, you could just as well read gospel-centered family as we mean by gospel-centered community in, in that statement. A family that flows out of the gospel and points back to the gospel, the good news of Christ. So what does that look like? Well, think of your own family. That's your best illustration. Even though some of our families are a little more messed up than others, uh, 
Think of a family. How should a family work? A family loves one another. A family cares for one another. That's how it's supposed to work. Bears one another's burdens. A family tells the truth to one another. It doesn't take advantage of each other and and, and tear one another down in order to build oneself up. A family's humble and patient and forgiving. You know, if grandma burns the rolls every single Christmas, we don't switch her out for a new one next year. You know, it doesn't work that way. A family's patient just because I've been working with my son to, or, or daughter to get them to live a certain way or do a, some, do a certain thing and it's taken years and years and years and there's still no progress. It doesn't mean I give up on them and move on to some other kid. A family's patient. A family is bonded together. But even when a family does make mistakes, even when we do take advantage of each other, because it does happen, you know that. Even when we do uh, hurt one another or sin against one another, a family works hard to preserve that unity. We fight for reconciliation when conflict divides. Taking the gospel of Jesus seriously, that if God's grace in Christ is sufficient to deal with our sin against a holy God. And isn't it enough to deal with the sins we commit against one another? We fight for reconciliation and unity with the gospel of grace. Not to be overly graphic here. If you lose your finger on a construction site um, in an accident or something, the goal is not to leave it lying there on the ground, but to get it reattached as quick as possible. And yet... So often, we're content to let members of our own body lay wounded and neglected rather than moving toward them in humility and repentance in accordance with the bond that we have in Christ. We are a family. A family needs one another. Not simply because we can accomplish more together, though that's true, but because we actually love one another. And because we need each other to constantly help us cling daily to the love and grace that we have in Christ. I need you as a congregation, as my brothers and sisters, to remind me that I'm not justified by how good a job I do in the pulpit. Or by how many uh, meetings I can cram into a week. Or by how good a job or how bad a job I do raising my kids. I need you to remind me that I am secure in Christ that he is my righteousness. We need one another to remind us of that freeing truth, that our identity is secure in Jesus. In Christ, we are a new family that not only flows out of the gospel of what God's done, but points one another back to that gospel, that same gospel that keeps us anchored and secure in our calling and our hope. So in Christ, we're a family. But as a family, we do not exist just for ourselves. We have a calling and a purpose. We have a mission as a family. And the next four identities that we're going to look at are going to help us understand what that purpose is. So second, in Christ, we are worshipers. We're a family of worshipers who, whose chief goal is to make much of God and his glory. A family of worshipers whose chief goal is to make much of God and his glory. To worship means to treat something like God. So whether that something 
uh, is a person or a thing. It's to delight in it. It's to depend on it. It's to find our ultimate hope and significance in that thing, whatever it is. And true worship is to treat God like God, in other words. So worshiping God is central to our identity as the new family of God. And if you if we look again at, at that opening psalm of praise of God's salvation, you know, three times uh, Paul explains the whole purpose of God's plan of salvation, and it three times it goes something like this: to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. The whole aim of God's plan of salvation, of rescuing a people for Himself, adopting us into His family, is to display how beautiful and worthy. He is through us. We are worshipers who give him glory. Similarly, at the end of chapter 3, when Paul prays, his prayer is that to God be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations. His prayer is that God's name would be magnified through his people. So being members of God's new family is not about us. It's about God. It's about his worthy reputation. One of the ways that Ephesians makes this point is by showing us how the church is a new temple in the Lord, uh, a new temple of God. So listen to how Paul describes our identity in Christ at the end of chapter 2. This is 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. There's family imagery again built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, now we're switching imagery, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What in the world does it mean to describe the church as a temple? kind of an odd image. You know, well, in the Old Testament, the temple was the building where the God of heaven dwelt on earth with his people in a special way. That's where the people of Israel went on earth to meet with the God who lives in heaven, to behold his beauty, to receive his mercy through the sacrifices that were offered for sin, to worship him and to give him glory. We're told over and over how the temple, that building, was the fullness of God's glory. It was filled with his presence and glory. When God took on human flesh and came to earth in Jesus, there was no longer any need for a temple building because Jesus' body was the place of God's special presence on earth. His body became the temple. You wanted to see God and on earth, you look at Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of God's glory, as John 1 describes him. And having ascended back to heaven, the new people of God who are united with Christ and indwelled by his spirit, the church, we are now described as that body, that temple. As Paul puts it in 123, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the temple is all about God's presence and God's glory. And that is a description of what the church is to be about, of what the church is. God is with us to display his glory through us. God's presence, God's glory. God is with us to display his glory through us. So that makes us worshipers of God, people who give glory to Christ.
What does that look like practically speaking? You know, we're a family of worshipers. What does that mean? Well, first it means that worshiping God in Christ is not about going to a special place, a building. We, together, are that special place. The local churches throughout this region, throughout the world, are that special place. Wherever we gather and wherever we go, God is with us to make himself known, to extend his mercy, and to display his glory. So it's not about a building anymore. Second, it means that whatever we do, whether we are gathering together under his word to respond in praise and prayer, like we're doing right now, or whether we link arms and go out and serve the Lord together in the community. Both of those are worship. Both of those are treating God like God. Whatever we do, it's not ultimately about us, but about him, about his renown, his reputation. And so all of life must be shaped by God's word and aimed at God's glory. We're a family of worshipers. Every one of us faces a temptation of hijacking a ministry or holding hostage some aspect of church uh, in order to make it about me, about my desires, my preferences, my values, my goals, my needs. And in order to protect those idolatrous desires, we freely demonize the alternatives so as to make what we want look good. All of us have that idolatrous blood running through our veins. And it happens even when we gather and think about what are we and who are we as a church. If, you know, some of our hearts, and just to be, you know, transparent here, some of our hearts are so dark as to take something like, something so God-honoring as, as preaching the Bible and, and secretly hope that through that people will like me better for it. You know, we hijack things. For our own selfish purposes. We do that. But if we are to be a community. A community shaped by the gospel. Whose identity as worshipers is rooted in Christ. Then being true to who we are means surrendering to God's word. It means surrendering to God and and his desires. Trusting the spirit to do so. And making our chief aim in life to know and delight in God. Not to be made much of, but to make much of Him. To make much of Him. It's not about us. It's about God. It's not about Westgate Church. It's about God. And ironically, the best thing for us as a congregation is to delight in and make much of God. Because there's nothing else better for us than to be known by the Lord and to know and love and delight in him. God's glory is the best thing that we can be about. And it's true to our identity. God dwells with us to display his glory. So we're a family of worshipers. We're also in Jesus learners. And that's the third identity. In Christ, we are learners. Another word for that is disciples. Disciples. One of the sometimes frustrating realities of being recipients of God's plan of redemption, his redeeming work, is that there's still more redemption to come. We're not done. Uh, you know, there is an age to come. There is an inheritance waiting for us uh, in, that, in that place, in that time. And in that day, we will stand before God face to face as perfect reflections of his glory, as complete 
trophies of his grace. Sin will be no more. Selfishness will be no more. Uh, and it will be beautiful. And that inheritance that we look for is secure through our faith in Christ. It's been guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit, as Paul wrote in chapter 1. But we're not there yet, are we? That time is not yet here, which means that as a family of worshipers in whom God dwells and through whom he displays his glory, not a single blessed one of us has arrived. You know, the goal of being worshipers of God who reflect his glory is that if you look at someone, you see, wow, that's what Jesus looks like. Look at his life. Listen to his words. Look at how he loves and serves one another. That ain't true for a single one of us here. We are still incomplete. We still live in a fallen world. We still sin. We still hurt one another. So therefore, if we are a family of worshipers, we must also be a family of learners who are continuing to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Continuing to learn what it means to follow Jesus as his disciples. In chapter 4, Paul talks about the necessity of working together as a family to mature in Jesus together and so display his glory. And Christ has given gifted leadership in the church for that very purpose. Look at chapter 4, verse 11 with me. Speaking of, of, of Christ, it is he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. We must be learners who grow toward maturity. Uh, it's interesting, you see that temple language here again. We are to grow into the full measure of the fullness of Christ, the display of his glory. But to do so, we must be continually changed by the gospel of Jesus, by the word of God and the power of the Spirit, to grow more deeply in our love for Christ and more deeply in our hatred of sin, to no longer want to do that kind of stuff. And so to reflect the character and image of Christ, not just to one another, but to a watching world, to a watching world, to display the beauty of the Lord. So as we move toward our vision again, how do we do so as learners? You know, learners who recognize we've not yet arrived. Uh, learners who submit to God's word, who, who put a priority there who depend daily on the grace of the gospel, who look to God's spirit to change us, who know that left to ourselves we are bankrupt. We need God to do the work. So learners who are committed to prayer for God to do the work. Learners who look to one another for help to grow and become equipped for the mission that God's given us. It's interesting, in chapter 4 there, it's not those who are gifted who are doing all the work of ministry. I don't know if you picked up on that. Rather, those who are gifted by God prepare God's people for works of service. So, we all have a role to play in serving God together. Uh, 
as learners and as servants and missionaries, which brings us then to our fourth and our fifth identities in Jesus. In Jesus, we're a family of worshipers and learners, but we are also a family of servants who express God's love to others by laying our lives down. By laying our lives down after the pattern of Christ. That's our fourth identity. We're servants. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Essential to our identity as God's family, as children of the Lord, children in Christ, essential to that is following Christ's pattern of life-giving, sacrificial, loving service. We're to be servants. To be a servant is not a particularly glorious vocation. Um, In fact, the word that the New Testament often uses here is perhaps better translated as slave or bondservant. But as J.I. Packer has said, whether being a servant is a matter for shame or for pride depends on whose servant one is. By God's Spirit, we've been united with the One, with the King of heaven and earth, who, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so being a servant, following the pattern of Christ, is all about denying ourselves in order to bless others. Denying ourselves in order to bless others. Our natural tendency is not to do that. (laughs) We want to protect self. We want to even promote self. And if at all possible, get others to promote ourselves and to serve us. That's how our hearts naturally work. Being a servant messes up our world. It messes up our expectations, our plans. Very rarely to those in need call ahead to schedule their crisis with you so that you can you know, jump in and help. It doesn't work that way. It's inconvenient. And yet, the question is, do we love our schedule and our expectations more than we love our neighbor? Do we love our comfort more than we love Christ? Or do we look at the gospel and see the incredible love and lengths to which Jesus went, not not merely to be inconvenienced, but to lay his very life down for us, not just in the excruciating pain of the cross, but in the incomprehensible horror of bearing God's holy penalty against our sin on himself, the extent to which Jesus went to love us. Do we look at that? And, and does our heart well up in joy and love in, in doing likewise and laying our lives down for our neighbors and friends? Are we servants fueled and shaped by the gospel of Jesus? As we move toward our vision, we must be willing to do so with a servant's heart and servant's hands. Being willing to be inconvenienced, to have our plans messed up, to get dirty in helping others know the love and beauty of Christ. Whether that service expresses itself in our own marriages and and, and families, which is one of the ways Paul uh, unpacks that in chapters 5 and 6, talking about how we serve one another in love there, or whether that service shows itself 
in how we treat one another and others outside, you know, those who don't yet know the Lord, which Paul models with his own life in, in chapter 3 and chapter 6. Service is essential to our identity as a family in whom God dwells and through whom he displays his glory. We're a family of worshipers and learners and servants. And fifth, and closely related to, to servants, we're a family of missionaries. We're a family of missionaries who spread God's glory through our message in love. A family of missionaries who spread God's glory, who make God look good, who show how good and amazing he really is through our message, the gospel, and through our love, laying our lives down. Now, next, the next two Sundays, we're going to take a closer look at that uh, specific aspect of mission. What does it mean to be on mission for the Lord? What is our mission in terms of making disciples? And what does that practically look like as busy people who live in suburbia and, and so on and so forth? We're going to talk about that. But mission is not just something we are to do. It's essential to who we are in Jesus. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus commissioned his apostles to be his ambassadors and to tell the world about the life-changing good news of Christ, he said to them, As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Our identity in Christ means that we are a sent people sent on mission. And again, as we read earlier in Ephesians 4, it's not those who are just gifted at evangelism or gifted at these kinds of things that are supposed to do all the work. They're the ones who train the rest of us how to do it. They're the ones who equip the saints for the work of ministry. We all share together in the calling to be missionaries for the Lord. Now, we usually reserve that term missionary for those who uh, serve God vocationally in a cross-cultural setting. That's usually how we use it. And that's fine. As long as we don't fool ourselves into thinking that the calling for the rest of us is any different. I'm not talking about how we make our living. But are we called to take everything we are and everything we do and use that to make God look, to show the beauty and worthy of God in our love and in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. To make Christ known among those facing an eternity in hell. And again, we'll talk about that the next next couple of weeks. And we'll talk about it together in the couple of congregational meetings where we're hoping to kind of dialogue and process what does this look like together. Um, we'll talk a lot about uh, this vision of mission. But a few questions to think about as we close this morning. If in Christ we are missionaries, and clearly our desire is to see more and more people come to a saving Knowledge in Jesus Christ. We want to see lives changed. We want to see God receive the glory that he alone deserves. How does that identity shape what we do when we gather Sunday morning? This identity of being a family of missionaries. Are we willing to invite our friends and neighbors to come with us? And would they feel welcome here if we did? Would we go out of our way to meet them and to, to get to know them? Would they see a love shared among us as a family? Would they see the beauty of Christ on display in our relationships and in how we move toward them? Would they be able to follow and understand what's happening during this time that we spend in a worship service together? 
uh, would they begin to get a sense of what difference Jesus truly makes. And if there are what I call unnecessary roadblocks, so things that get in the way that don't have to be in the way, are we willing to remove them for the sake of the gospel? Now, I'm not talking about, quote-unquote, necessary roadblocks, you know, things like the exclusivity of Christ or the truth of God's word or uh, the problem of judgment and, and, and the, or an emphasis on God's glory. I'm not talking about things that are essential to the Christian faith, but non-essential things, whether it's the programs we offer or don't offer. Uh, you know, maybe it's music style, the flow of our service, the look and feel of our building, the time that we meet, all these different things that are not unimportant but aren't essential to being you know, the people of God in Christ, the display of his glory. I'm not, talking about dis- I'm not talking about despising our heritage. I'm talking about finding our identity in our ultimate heritage, the inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven and taking as many people with us as possible. Are we willing to ask those kind of hard questions if we are a family of missionaries living on mission for the Lord? If we're serious about being true to our identity as missionaries and and not just preserving some idea of church as a museum, but sharing life together as a vibrant movement for the sake of the gospel. Are we willing to ask hard questions about what it means for us in this time, in this place, among this culture to live on mission for the Lord? That's the first question. The second If in Christ we are a family of missionaries, how does that identity shape what we do when we scatter? So we've got to think about what we do when we gather. How does it shape what we do when we scatter uh, throughout the rest of the week? As we live out our vision, we need to ask God to open our eyes to the opportunities that are in front of us. uh, The relationships that we have, opportunities to serve and love our neighbors, to, to make the most of every moment For the sake of the Lord. So, you know, questions like, in what ways can this congregation be a blessing to the town of Weston? Here we are in Weston. How can we be a blessing to this town as as we go out? Or how might those of us who live in Wayland uh, work together to serve our neighbors in Wayland? Or in Framingham, those teaming together to be a, a team on mission for the Lord, engaging Framingham. For the sake of the gospel. Or Natick, or Wellesley, Needham, Newton, Sherborne, Dover, Marlborough, Sudbury, Belmont, Arlington, Berlin, uh, Stoughton. You know, the, and the list goes on. You know, one of the unique challenges of uh, Westgate, the fact that as a congregation we're quite spread out and we come from a lot of different towns, is also a unique opportunity. God has placed us throughout the Metro West. He's given us relationships in a whole lot of places with the potential of having a wide impact for Jesus. Are we making the most of that where God has put us? What might we do to share life together outside these walls as a family of missionary servants to make the most of our relationships in our particular areas for the sake of the gospel if we are a family of missionaries? Who we are flows out of who Jesus is and what he's done. Our identity comes from our union with Christ. And what we do is shaped by who we are. 
how we go about living true to our identity. As we move toward our vision, the vision God's given us, to be a gospel-centered community, living each day on mission for Christ, may God strengthen us to do so as a family of worshipers and learners and servants and missionaries in whom God dwells by his spirit and through whom God displays his glory, makes his beauty known. That is our prayer. That is our prayer. So please join me in lifting that before the Lord. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us scattered and divided and alone. We look at the comparison in this book of who we are apart from Christ and then what you've done to make us a new people in Christ. And we are overwhelmed, God. We're overwhelmed by your love, by your mercy. If we stop for for two seconds and think about, we know how dark our own hearts are. We spend a lot of time trying to hide that darkness from one another. And yet, the gospel breaks straight through to the core of it and deals decisively with it, applying your blood and freeing us from our guilt and shame. That is an overwhelming joy, Lord. And yet, then, we we look at who you've made us to be and we think about how can we do all of that? That's overwhelming. Uh, an overwhelming responsibility. And I feel that. I know a lot of people feel that. Lord, help us remember that you're not asking of us anything that you aren't going to do through us if we depend on your spirit. It's not about tightening our belts and working harder for you, but resting in Jesus and joyfully following with the strength that the Spirit supplies, working hard by the grace of God and the strength of the Spirit. And Lord, that means that um, we have to ask hard questions about our own lives, about our church, about what it means to be faithful to the calling. Would you, by your grace, gently take us through that process? Would you gently guide us to making the most of our life for you, Lord? I pray that we would not operate out of shame and guilt, but that we would simply grow in our knowledge of you, uh, in, in the joy and freedom of your grace, and that that would overflow into lives of service for you, Lord. May your gospel be our motivation, not some sort of uh, performance measure. May the grace we have in Jesus be our motivation. We ask all of this, Lord, in the name of your Son.